All right. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Dr. Dede Tetsubayashi, founder and CEO of INCLU, a Brave Spaces consultancy. We work at the intersection of technology um, and diversity, equity, and inclusions, ethics, and product. Um, we are here today for another Brave Spaces roundtable with special guest Olanike A. Mensa. Um, Olanike, please introduce yourself and tell us about the work that you do and what drew you to that work. Sure. Hi. I'm, uh, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm so excited yes. to be here <laughs> to have this conversation today. Um, so I am, my name is Olanike and um, I am a DEI strategist. Um, and what that means is I partner with people and with workplaces to help um, make that workplace work for each of the people that are in it. Um, and uh, I founded, I founded um, Mosaic Consulting, uh, which is a consulting practice that um, allows us to partner with folks to do that work. And so we, our work sits at the intersection of leadership development and all things diversity, equity, and inclusion um, in the workplace. Thank you so much for that introduction. Can you give us a little bit more information about what drew you to that work, why you think it's important and why you continue to do it? So why did I get into this work? Why am I drawn to this work? Um, I was naturally curious growing up. So um, I think that curiosity paired with my life experiences from childhood really, which was what I now know to be a third culture kid meaning that my family moved back and forth between the United States and Nigeria, where, where uh, my family is from, where my people are from, um, a couple of times between birth and the age of 10. So by the age of 10, we, we had gone from the U.S. to Nigeria and Nigeria back to the U.S. And, um, you know, I kind of came back to the United States at, a, at, a, at an interesting developmental phase where I was sort of in the, the last parts of elementary school, going into high school. Um, and um, I just learned a lot. I had to absorb and learn a lot in that time period. And I went from very much being um, in a place where I felt like a hundred percent belonged. I didn't even have to second guess it or think about it to a place where I was definitely not <laughs> um, a part or, or did not feel like I belonged. I didn't, uh, frankly. And so um, the ability to sort of move from one culture to the next, even within the United States, I felt like I really grew up at the in intersection of two or three different kind of subcultures, um, even in my uh, experience um, growing up here, um, just sort of planted these seeds of just wanting everybody to feel like they belong, wanting people to be treated fairly and equitably. And I didn't have that language then, but that's what I know it to be now. And so that started to show up in the kinds of like jobs that I would take in college and the kinds of programs that I would volunteer for. Ultimately, it showed up in the way that I showed up at work, which was always advocating on behalf of people, <laughs> um, especially when I was in middle management. And then as I moved up into higher into the higher ranks of leadership, like that was just a part of what I was always doing in the workplace. And for a lot of those workplaces, I served as an internal DEI consultant on top of whatever my actual job was. Um, and so somewhere along the way, I'm like, you know what? I want to do this for myself. <laughs> I want this to be what I do 
primarily instead of the additional things that I do on the side. Um, and so that's how Mosaic was born. I was always a really strong manager and a strong leader and was able to sort of raise up and um, develop other people into managers and leaders. And so that's a passion of mine. And that work has always been embedded with equity principles. Um, so I get to do that along with just strictly DEI work, audits and assessments and strategic plans and workshop facilitation and speaking and all that kind of stuff. So. That's how I got here. <laughs> Fabulous. That resonates so much with me and relates. Um, I related a lot to how I got started with um, the work that we do at Inclu as well. I'm also a third culture kid. And until recently, I didn't even realize that was a, a term. Um, a and It's a thing. Right. <laughs> it's a thing. Um, and also a transracial adoptee. Like I didn't know there was such a thing mm-hmm. as a transracial adoptee. I'm, wow, I've always yeah. just been like, I was born in this country um, and my adoptive mom is white. And growing up, mm-hmm. people would be like, is that really your mom? Like, is that your real mom? Like all sorts of questions. Um, but yep. yes, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, yeah. on, the, on the heels of that, I'm really curious to find out how um, your work as an advocate, standing up for others, um, doing that work internally for others has transitioned into doing this as part of Mosaic, right? Um, through your consultancy and um, in your experience, um, what what do you think have been um, critical to create a strong strategy for diversity, equity, inclusion or counter um, on the counter side? What do you think in your experience are signs of a strategy that is doomed to fail um, in the work that you've done with with uh, other organizations? Gotcha. OK, so. Um, I probably have a list of 20 things on either side. <laughs> so I'm only going to speak to a couple. I actually have a, a framework that I developed. That was, it's sort of, you know, like here are the six things you need to know um, or the six pillars that need to um, be accounted for in any successful DEI strategy. So I'll talk about a couple of those things, but um, but then I want to talk about some of the things that are that are basically setting you up for failure. Absolutely. <laughs> so on the setting you up for success side, um, I would say data gathering is key, and I know we're going to talk about that. I think a little bit later, so I won't give too much away right now. But I have to mention it as part of a key uh, element of your strategy is gathering data. Um, because we still work in the types of workplaces that we do, if you're not tracking it, if it's not measured, nobody cares about it. Right, wrong, or indifferent. That's just what it is, right? And so we have to get that data. Mm -hmm. Um, And most workplace leaders pride themselves on making data-informed decisions. And you can gather data around these sort of soft and fuzzy things like culture and belonging. and, um, And those are things you can gather data around. And so that's the first thing that I would say is start gathering that information. And um, it's really important to be able to disaggregate the data so you can really tell how different pockets of your population are faring in the workplace. So there's that. Um, Accountability is really important. And that has to go from the most senior person all the way through to the least senior person in your organization. The new hire individual contributor that just started like yesterday, all the way up to 
the CEO, founder. And I would even say, depending on whether you're in the nonprofit or in the corporate structure, like, or both, really, that it, it also actually goes up to the board level. In either scenario, really. Agreed. Agreed. So, and that's something I'd love to get to also. Like, what is accountability and why do why mm, are people afraid of that term? But yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes. We can definitely dig into that. Um, so so I the third one that I'll mention is a learning stance. So a lot of people call the DEI work like the DEI journey, either individually they're on this, you know, equity or um, anti-oppression, you know, like awareness journey or whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, uh, Or as an institution, people use that analogy a lot. And I also use that analogy a lot, even though (laughs) I have a bit of an issue with it because the journey sort of, sort of insinuates that there's an end, there's a destination. And unless any of us that are alive today are going to grow to be four or 500 plus years old, we're not going to see that destination. There is no there there. <laughs> there is no end. There is um, no end. Continuing okay. education. <laughs> no, we, we even for those of us that have um, that hold marginalized identities that have had these experiences, we are still learning. Um, mm-hmm. And anyone that tells you that they're an expert and don't have to learn anything else, like run. don't hire them don't work with them you know like I am humbled all the time when I'm like oh wow okay okay DEI expert you know check your own bias right like this is some it's a journey that we're all on um and so that learning stance um is really important and it's important on an individual level and it's also important on an organizational level that as an institution you're also taking a learning stance um, so that you can continue to take in new information and evolve um, as your environment um, calls for it. So the, the one thing that I'll say just to answer the flip side, I said I wanted to answer the flip side of what what will definitely set you up for failure um, is, you know, trying to look the part, <laughs> trying to play the part without actually being the part, <laughs> so to speak. Um, so just, I mean, put simply, it's just being performative. And sometimes yeah. people don't even recognize that they are being performative, which, which is tricky. <laughs> but, but a lot of y'all know that oh, yes. you're, you're just writing the statement and putting, you know, getting, hiring that consultant so you can say that you did it. Um, but when it comes to actually putting those new policies and practices and procedures into place, when it comes to actually resourcing people with the budget that they need to do this work, with the team that they need to pull that um, action plan off, that's where you start to see, um, you know, limited follow through. So I would say that um, on the flip side, you know, like me, if you're going to do this work, um, do it, do it right and do it well from the beginning. Because if you're being performative and only sort of taking, you know, half steps forward and not really fully committing your your institution, your workplace, yourself um, to the journey, <laughs> right, to the journey, right. you know, the, the, the work that you're doing, um, you're actually going to waste more time and waste more money and energy and goodwill. And you're going to waste trust because people are not going to trust you. So it's it's more costly to to fumble it, to fumble the ball. So Absolutely. do it right. 
Do it right from the beginning. Take the time that's necessary. Recognize that it is a long-term journey and there isn't necessarily Mm -hmm. an end. Like, just like you said at the beginning, it's not, it's not um, like a project whereby there's a start, a middle and an end and then that's it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So how in, in, in working with people who are ready, people who are not ready and everything in between, how do you help people find their place in doing the work, quote unquote, or how, you know, however you want to phrase that? Um, mm-hmm. what, what is your approach? And do you think that um, there are certain things that people should keep in mind as they go through this journey? So, you know, typically when, when working with folks, um, I am trying to assess where they're starting from. So how, um, if it's an individual, so sometimes I'll um, provide coaching and advising to the, the people and culture director or the, you know, director of HR or the, whoever is the person inside the, the workplace that's in charge of their DEI initiative. Um, and so in those, in those coaching conversations, um, I'm trying to help I'm trying to understand where they're starting from and help them understand where they're starting from and, and how much more work is ahead of them. So there's a, there's sort of like a placement piece in the beginning, like where are you starting from? I will say that that's important too, because I prefer to work with clients who have already gotten through the sort of grassroots. um, We're still exploring whether or not this is a direction we want to go in. Um, I like to work with clients that have already decided this is what they're doing, right? And so at minimum, when I'm looking to work with someone, that's sort of what I'm looking for at the the start of the conversation. Have you decided? Have you committed? And what is the nature of that commitment? So if I'm asking questions uh, of the individual, I want to know how they would describe that. What does that look like in action? If I'm asking that workplace um, if I'm asking a, a potential client about their workplace, it's it's the same it's the same question. Where's your leadership with this? What's the nature of their buy-in or commitment? You know, etc. Um, and so that's that's really important because that's how I, as a consultant, can figure out where um, we can take you next, how we can get you there, what sort of assessment tools do we need? You know, sometimes I'm working with someone and they've already got three years of diversity and inclusion survey data. Um, and sometimes they have nothing. <laughs> so we're starting from scratch with sort of discovery exercises, activities, conversations, focus groups, that, that sort of thing. Um, and so that, that's, that's typically the starting point is, is where are you? Have you gotten to the point of, I no longer need to be compelled to do this. I'm ready to do this. And then from there, wh- what's the nature? Like we have, you know, nonprofits that are 20 people and, um, tech companies that are 300 plus people, right? So there's a wide range um, and there are different tools that we can put together to help, you know, a small organization sort of see progress and move forward that would not be applicable for a larger institution and vice versa. Right. That's really I don't know if I answered your question. I think, I mean, we're, we're talking about it and I don't think there's any right answer to the question. Mm-hmm. It's It's basically like, and it's connected to the next question that I have, which is like, is there an organizational structure that is fundamental yeah. to doing the work? And you, you already touched on that. Like 
It goes all the way mm-hmm. from individual contributor to executive leadership to even the board. Um, mm-hmm. And in starting the journey, you put a pin into where they are on that journey, all the different levels of um, progress on that journey. But you also break mm-hmm. the players into groupings like doers, makers, change makers, um, the catalyst, those who are volunteers and maybe burnt out. Um, how do you place them within this larger overall mm. structure that is necessary for the work to be done? Yeah. And so that's, you know, that brings in an element of change management. So if we're working on a mid to long-term, you know, strategy, we need to understand who the players are, right? Who are those champions? Who are the folks that are going to be in the core team of visionaries that are sort of telling the story and bringing everybody along? Um, who are the resistors? And, and there's different, there's various levels. <laughs> there are those that are like, there's, you're not going to win them back. <laughs> They've been burned too many times. And then they're there are gone. those that are just they're questioning. Gone. Right. They're gone. Um, and then there are those that are questioning and they just need some more information. They need clearer communication. Um, and they'll come along and we need to speak to whatever their fears are. Cause really, you know, humans don't like change. We, we, we like our comfort zones. <laughs> and when we things start to happen, things. especially, uh huh. Uh huh. When things start to happen, especially things that are going to um, impact our workplace, where we make our money, you know, self-preservation. <laughs> the first Absolutely. Thing people, the first people thing. start to wonder, what does this mean for me? And so when you're doing DEI work, like anything else, like any other major initiative in a workplace, you have to be able to answer those change management questions. Why are we doing this? What is the risk if we don't do this? Right. Um, and, um, and what does this mean? What does this mean for the, uh, marketing team, which is different maybe from your communications team, which is different from your product or programs team, which is different from if you're in the nonprofit space, your funding, your development and fundraising team, which is different from engineering and from sales and like all these different functions, right? Uh, the, the finance and accounting team, you have to be able to answer the questions about, what that means for them. How is their work going to change and who's going to help them through that change? Um, and so it's really, it is really important to seek help from consultants, um, multiple consultants, because the same consultant may not be able to help you with all of that. Um, but it's really important that you, you have a strategy and a plan in place to sort of start from foundational things that you need to have and then build out your DEI strategy from there and make sure that it's incorporated into every aspect of that workplace so that it can be successful. Right. I really like how you pointed out that it's really important to have that structure in place and um, that um, organizations bring in consultants and sometimes multiple consultants. Something that I don't think a lot of um, companies, organizations, um, uh, nonprofits, whoever we're working with understand is that they want one person to be able to do everything, right? But it's not even possible within their own organization to have a person who does everything. And I right. truly believe in that people do exist who are literally jacks of all trades or Jane of all trades. 
And I don't mean that in the negative sense that that term has started to mm-hmm. take on in the sense that I mean it in the sense of um, a, a jack of all trades is a master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. We don't mm-hmm. find people who are a master of all. It's really hard. Right. And it's hard right. to expect that you can find one consultant who's going to help you go through this long-term journey all on their own. And they don't reach out right. to multiple people. And for me, it's important for, for me to partner with other people in my ecosystem. Like if we get a reach out from someone who is at a beginning of their journey and not focusing on products, not focusing on um, ethical mm-hmm. tech development, I'm going to bring in my partners like you, like Jennifer. Ditto. Right. Right. right and back is to there you. Some, oh, right. Products <laughs> development. What? Hello. Let me call. Let me clue. Because I don't, this is, I can give you some musings, but yes. this is not my wheelhouse. So right? let's partner. Yeah. And I don't know why it's so difficult for our companies to, to grasp that. And I feel like it comes mm-hmm. back to that sense of understanding what it is that they're trying to achieve one, whatever goals that they have and communicating that properly. Um, but also mm-hmm. making sure that they have people on board who are going to sponsor the work step by step. Um, yeah. and I think that's sometimes one of the hardest things for us. Um, as the consultants coming in to uh, convince those partners, those those companies mm-hmm. of. Um, but in your experience, what have yeah. you found to be, or who, I guess, have you found to be the hardest to convince or get, get on board? Mm. It's usually a, a like a um, the person or the leaders who are underestimating this work Mm-hmm. Um, and don't understand why it takes all that. <laughs> and why much. it's even necessary. Like why, why, why is it important? Why, why do we have to do all that? Just tell, tell me the things I need to do so I can go do it. And I'm like, mm, it's not a checklist. Give me a checkbox, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a checklist. That's the shortest route to, to flopping. Um, and so I think the people that, um, a lot of times folks that are in leadership positions, um, depending on how long they've been there are just not used to other people being the expert. Um, and I, I probably should explain that a little bit more. I think they're not, not to say that they're not used to people having their areas of focus and their specialties or whatever, but, They've been in business for 20, 30 years or whatever it's been. They've got all the degrees. They took the classes or whatever. So they understand a little bit about accounting enough to have some expertise in, you know, balance sheets and, (laughs) you know, loss and profits statements and all of that. Right. They've got a little bit. They took that marketing course and had that project. So they've got and they've been in work. They've been working long enough to know a little bit about that. Um, and communications and fundraising and all, and all of these things, right? So they have some basis of knowledge and then they want to do workplace equity work and they start to sort of apply things from other, you know, lanes of their experience to that work. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, nope, doesn't work like that. And you've never studied this. <laughs> 
nor have you necessarily had the experience. (laughs) Or have you, exactly. And in fact, the things that you studied are part of the problem that we are here to help you address. Yes. So that you can do things differently and more equitably. So the things you know are actually part of the problem. So how do you tell somebody that, right? So that's when it gets really tough is when, there, there is, there hasn't been enough of uh, awareness raising and um, enough sort of like humility in the person for them to actually listen to what's good for them, right? For them to actually take a step back. Um, and you know, thankfully, we we try to weed that. I'm going to say weed it out, but we try to weed it out or like figure it out before we actually commit to a client because if that's where they are we're just not going to be able to work together. If you're coming in wanting to dictate the solution. Uh, can we talk about that a little bit? Can we talk about that yeah. a little bit? <laughs> okay. Let's stop. Let's stop right there. Let's double tap right there. <laughs> double tap time. Let's dig deep. <laughs> uh-huh. Why is it? Yeah. How is it? One you know you need support. Hopefully, you know you need support and you've reached out to the experts to help you with that. Mm -hmm. But you have a very, very well laid out plan for how things must go. I feel like it is, um, it's a coping mechanism in a way because taking it Mm. back to therapy. When we go to therapy, we are going to therapy because we know we need help with something. And we know that we're repeating patterns of behavior that may not be as healthy as we are trying to be. So we're going back to our safe space. I feel like those who are coming to the table with well laid out plans for how they want things to go, they're falling back on what makes them comfortable within a white supremacist culture. The very thing that they need to be yeah. acknowledging that they need to be working against. Absolutely. 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 Um, and there is a difference between a client who has been doing their work. You know, they've they've yeah. got folks in the DEI roles and in the team They've done assessments and they're coming because they're further along on their journey. And they're like, this is the plan that we have in place. These are the things, and, you know, help us review this. We need to reassess. We're, we're going into phase two right. or phase three of our strategic right. plan. For whoever is listening, <laughs> there is a difference. that's not that's what, not we're, what talking we're talking about, about. We're talking about brand new Oh, you know, we realize that discrimination is still happening. Racism is a thing still. Oh, look, all the people of color that we say work here are in the lower non-leadership levels of our organization. We had never really thought about that before. Like they're they're at the yes. beginning, yes. right? And they're dictating the solution to their workplace issues. Um, I I mean... It just, it just doesn't work that way. You know, it, it is, it's, that's when you need to stop and start with just one-on-one or leadership level only coaching, because there is a certain place from a mindset perspective that the powers that be, the folks that hold positional power 
in a workplace, there's a certain mind frame, like mindset that they need to be at to be able to start this journey and commit to it and to get Mm -hmm. uncomfortable, to get embarrassed, Mm -hmm. to get humbled and still be able to move through those moments and stay committed to this work. Um, And I think I, and I think one, one thing that they're not going into the space understanding or believing is that they're going into the space uncomfortable and they know they have to sit with that uncomfortableness, but they're not understanding that the ultimate endpoint of this journey of these conversations, these hard conversations is to understand that uncomfortableness is pushing against growth, right? Is moving to a place where you have more understanding, more empathy, more sympathy, and you're able to actually have these conversations in a respectful manner and come up with plans in partnership, in collaboration Mm -hmm. with those Mm -hmm. who you've been leaving out or leaving behind. There is, like, there's a reason to, I guess, the madness, quote unquote. Yeah. But... There, yeah, there's there's a there's a reason for it. There's a method. There's a to method it. to it. <laughs> uh, there's a method to the madness. Um, and yeah, there's so much. I mean, you can watch a hundred TED talks about discomfort and pushing into like your your growing edge or your learning edge, which is right outside of your comfort zone. Um, and what what's interesting is that people. Many, many people and many people that are in positions of power in workplaces, as, as far as it, as it relates to the isms, right? All the isms in the workplace, all the ways that people are experiencing gaps in their belonging and inequity, um, folks that are, do- that are in the dominant sort of power positions in, in our institutions have not had to sit with discomfort as it relates right. to these right. isms. So we're talking about racism, you know, or sexism, or um, homophobia, ableism, or ableism, ableism, all the isms. All, all the, all the isms. Mm-hmm. We can keep on going, right? Um, and we typically at Mosaic start with race. We center race because it just cuts through every other ism, <laughs> no matter which one it is. It is a global issue. Um, and so we, we center that in our work, but we, we, we focus on everything. But we do center and start with race, especially when we're coaching um, folks in the United States and when doing workshops in the United States, because it's just evolved and, and, and transformed <laughs> in such a unique way there. Um, but yeah, so when you haven't, when you have no competency, no experience having a conversation about, let's, let's about racism. And now you have to do it in a place where you're supposed to be the boss. You're supposed to be the leader. You're supposed to be managing, You're supposed to know all these things and people are pushing your buttons and it's personal because it's personal, it's personal yes. for all of us <laughs> once we, once we start swimming in, in those topics, um, you're in, you're out of your comfort zone and folks don't realize like there's a distinction between you being outside of your comfort zone and being uncomfortable and you actually being right. threatened right? or you being in a, in a, in a space right. where you're no longer there's safe. A, there's a big difference. Right? Yeah. There's a, there's, it's a spectrum. As soon as you're outside your comfort zone, a lot of people are like, I'm not safe. You know, this is a safe space. I'm like, <laughs> it's not ah! the same. <laughs> 
You're uncomfortable. You're uncomfortable. Yes. You're uncomfortable yes. And that's okay. Yes. Let's help you through it. And that we're right. here to help them through that. I wanted yes. to say something. Oh, no, go ahead. Yes. Yeah, we're here to help you through it. And I wanted to say something. There's been, there was a conversation about um, discomfort on LinkedIn that I, I made some commentary on. It was posts by other um, DEI, you know, sort of anti-oppression consultants. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was, there was a conversation in like two or three different people's <laughs> pages about discomfort and how it's, um, you know, you, you should be doing this work in a way that doesn't center whiteness, white mm-hmm. comfort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And whiteness, right? Um, and then, you know, people are responding. That was the first post. The second post then said something. And they didn't, none of these folks actually called each other out. But I know they know each other. So I'm mm-hmm. like, I think they're responding to mm-hmm. each other. I don't know. So the next consultant says, <laughs> um, you know, that we're, we should be thinking about um, discomfort as a tool, in this work mm-hmm. um, and not as the end result. Cause I think, you know, there, there are some DEI practitioners out here that are like, I want to go make people uncomfortable. Right. Because well, I need to make you, I need to, you know, ruffle your feathers so you can get it. Right. And person B was like, no, it's a tool. It's not the outcome. Um, and what I went on to say is I don't even think it's a tool. It's just the reality. If any member of a dominant group is coming into brand new awareness that they are part of a broader societal picture and they may not have ever thought about it before, they're like, well, I wasn't privileged. I grew up poor in Appalachia. You know what? They weren't privileged if they grew up poor in Appalachia. I know. Still, I went to school in Kentucky. Still, Trust me. Context. Yes. <laughs> However... <laughs> Context, context, context. It's all societal positioning. This society bestows power that you can tap into depending on your skin color, whether you ever tap into it or not. Right. And that's what we're talking about. You won't necessarily see it happening. Right. Because you just don't have those barriers that you, you have to, you have to face. So when you're coming into that awareness and the way you've always thought about something is being moved and challenged in that way. It's just uncomfortable because it is. It's not a tool. It's it not is. a tactic. It's not the goal. It's just uncomfortable because you're human. Why wouldn't you be uncomfortable mm-hmm. when you're learning that for the first time? And right. you feel like the scales are falling off your eyes. So right. our job as facilitators in that space is to help you place that. Yes, I'm uncomfortable, but I'm not threatened. Yes. yes, I'm uncomfortable. I feel like I'm being challenged. Yes. But and it's here. But it's the here. The goal mm-hmm. that is higher, that is more valuable than that discomfort is, is liberation for everybody. Yes. True equality and equity for everyone. Yes. Right? And so it was a really fascinating sort of like set of conversations and all the comments um, about this idea of, you know, making people uncomfortable as a outcome or as a tool. As an like, outcome. No, it's just a reality. That is a really interesting it's just a reality way of, yes, it's a really interesting way of placing that. Um, I would not have thought to consider using it as like, well, as a goal of these conversations or uh, of yeah. doing the work overall. Um, 
I might have seen it more as a tool along like one of the things that you expect, but taking a step back and thinking more about Mm -hmm. the steps that I would want to take people through, through the journey. It is just one of the mechanisms, one of the signs that indicate we're, Mm -hmm. we're talking about the hard things. We're recognizing that there are hard things that we need to look at and discuss, tease apart, um, and then decide how we move beyond that. Once we understand that there is discrepancy, there is injustice, there is inequity, there is unequal, inequal, sorry, (laughs) inequality, Mm -hmm. all of the bad things. Right. (laughs) Um, but it's just, it's just one of the, it's a symptom. It's not a goal. It's, it's something that indicates you're either moving forward in a direction that you should expect to be moving in. And once you hit that, then that's the critical point where you have to be like, okay, now I can actually deal with the cognitive dissonance, for example, or start to make those connections uh-huh. and be like, aha, I've got the aha moment. We can start to move forward and start talk about, <laughs> well, how do we deal with it then? But, hmm. mm-hmm. Within all these conversations, you brought up earlier the importance of data. If we're not collecting data, what are we doing? We're collecting data about everything else. As good leaders, we want to call ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, um, well, at least we want to call ourselves good leaders when we're using data to inform our decisions, but we're not collecting data or the right kind of data. So what would you say about whether data is fundamental or like, would you say data is a fundamental pillar for successful DEI practices? Mm-hmm. And if so, what kind of data? And how should they be used? Yes. Yes. Um, This is, the way data is used gets really interesting for me um, because, yes, data is fundamental. (laughs) Let me just say that's a start. Data gathering um, and assessing and, and leveraging is foundational to this work. Um, and there's a lot of different types of data that need to be gathered. I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but what I will say is that in the absence of quality, you know, DEI related data, there's other data that's filling in those gaps, right? There our assumptions are filling oh, filling yes. in the gaps mm-hmm. in our knowledge that we're not filling with actual real data. Our biases are playing in there. You know, for, for some of our leaders, outright discrimination is just running amok in the absence of that data. Um, and so I do believe actually that most people want to live in a world and, and work in a place where equity is actually a thing. Um, where um, there is the presence of these diversity and inclusion strategies that are woven and embedded in a way that just makes everything better for everybody that steps into that workplace. I think most people like that utopia that I'm dreaming, that I dream (laughs) of, like who wouldn't want to be in that, in that, in that world, in that workplace, right? A lot of, most people just don't know how to get there, but there are the few (laughs) who, 
don't want to get there because they like the way that things are now. It's in their benefit. You know, bump whoever is able yeah. to bump mm-hmm. exactly um, whoever whoever can't um, you know sort of um, be be afforded the same opportunities. Right. You know whatever. Right. Okay. So in the absence of actual data, faux data. <laughs> let's just call it faux data. Is is running amok and informing those decisions. Um, so the thing that is interesting that I like to talk to people about is that just because you're just starting a DEI initiative and you're just looking at these numbers or po- focusing on this doesn't mean that new things are happening. It's been there. You just haven't looked at it. You just haven't paid attention to it. Your DEI, when I'm putting together a DEI action plan, um, I can sort of connect the dots to your employee engagement, your culture, your HR practices and policies, the way that you're making decisions when it comes to your spend. Like th- these things are happening and infiltrating. There are, it's already there. You, we just haven't paid attention to it. So the data gathering gives you a way, one way to pay better attention to what's going on there. Um, and there's lots of types of data that you can gather. You can do um, like, so So we do a full equity audit. That's the most comprehensive, com- comprehensive um, assessment that we have um, that will survey staff people and ask for all their sort of identity markers. And there's like 15 questions that we ask. So it's going beyond like race, <laughs> gender, and sexuality, the top three, you know, as I like to call them. It goes, we, we're, we're really looking, because part of the data that we um, uh, analyze, on the other hand, is um, intersectionality. So if you're holding multiple identities, what are those experiences right. looking like? Um, and then we, we ask questions about how valued people feel, how professionally nurtured they, they feel in your workplace. Do they feel like they're really connected to their colleagues and to the mission and vision of that workplace. And so we're able to look at that data. We also have listening sessions and focus groups and one-on-one interviews with different key um, stakeholders. And all of that information allows us to put together a plan on the other side. That is a different type of data. Usually in that plan, we're asking you to continue to track data, uh, particularly along the personnel cycle. So when people are in your hiring process, how are you tracking data net in, in that context? And there are a lot of tools that will help you do that across lines of difference, like the, you know, the, the 15, maybe not of all the 15 identity markers that we um, ask around in our, in our survey, but um, you can get some good data from some of these tools that are out there and sort of see when different populations start to fall off right. in your mm-hmm. pipeline, in your interview process. You can look at data around compensation. You can do a pay equity audit, which is its own thing, but you could also look at how you're making decisions when you're hiring people or when you're promoting people. Um, So there are lots of decision points along the personnel cycle that if you just pick 10 of those (laughs) and start gathering demographic, specifically demographic data, legally um, gathering demographic data along those decision points, the data will, I mean, you'll see it. (laughs) <laughs> you'll see, oh, it seems like once we get to this leadership level, only folks that are white are getting advanced into senior right. leadership levels. Mm-hmm. You know, you can you can start to see like data like that was my experience in one workplace is we realized two workplaces, actually, <laughs> um, 
when we started looking at this data, like, wow, it's very, very clear where, like, where yes. the ceiling is. The correlation is. <laughs> at this point. You can find that pattern. Yeah. So what mm-hmm. is happening? Exactly. What is happening once you get to VP that means you can't get to where that's keeping folks of color, marginalized identities from being able to like crack into that next level and be senior VPs. You know, what is happening when you're a senior manager that you cannot, we're not seeing many directors in this organizations um, with marginalized identities. So you can start to see that and then it allows you to prioritize your efforts because you've got solid data to make decisions. Yes, I could not have said that better myself. Um, One thing that we we get asked for um, at Include is to be able to share that data, um, parse it out into um, understandable pieces. Mm -hmm. But when we're asked that, like our response is usually who is trying to look at the data and for what reason Um, we're able to share um, uh, data overall that's aggregated, but anything that goes below a certain level and to being able to start to identify personal information or PII or start to pick out Mm -hmm. certain traits that you're looking for to correlate them to something that may not be correlated is something that we get asked for from either executive leadership or the board when they don't fully Mm. understand that by them having access to that data, they're then going to turn around and say, oh, okay, we have a certain percentage of truancy in a school. And can we correlate that information to our black and brown students because they might be suffering more or they might be of a lower socioeconomic um, class? And that's not what Mm. we want to collect the data for. Mm -hmm. If we collect the data and those who aren't going to use that information um, to understand the patterns of behavior in the organization. Like if we're not protecting people who are providing mm. that information to us so mm. that we can say, okay, this is what's happening. These are the correlations that we're seeing, not what you expect to see, not what you've already hypothesized. Yeah. Then we can share certain aspects mm-hmm. of that with you to help you get onto the next level. Like what do you need to do to shore up this gap mm-hmm. or to, to build a long-term strategy whereby you're being yeah. inclusive, equitable, um, and fair. I think those are two very different things and people don't mm-hmm. fully understand that they just hear data and they're like, Oh, well mm-hmm. we can't, we can't yeah. gather data because we have to ask people for that information. And you can, you do mm-hmm. want to know, what you're doing because you want to be able to see what your patterns of behavior are. Yeah. And, you know, from, um, from a workplace experience perspective, your people won't be transparent and give you good data. Um, if they know that you're going to be able to get to the raw data level, exactly in house. I mean, I have been inside of companies <laughs> trying to get people to fill out employee engagement surveys. Like, no, 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 we're really going to do something with it. And they're like, and they're no. like no. And I'm like, I'm on the team that does something with it. I no. promise you we're going to. And they're like, no, somebody, especially in tech, no. they're like, somebody in here knows how to read this code and figure out that it was me. 
So (laughs) I'm not doing it or I'm just going to go and tell them everything is great, even though it's not, because I don't want that blowback. Right. And the number one complaint that the EEOC types of complaint that EEOC gets is blowback. It's like I spoke up and and there was retaliation. Yes. So it's a real fear that your employees have. And so when you have consultants that are taking on taking that aspect away, right, by doing the the survey and gathering that data, protect Mm -hmm. that. Because that that Protect way you can that. actually get good information to do the thing that you say you want to do. Us giving you that raw data. First of right. all, when we do work, we're very upfront about exactly who's seeing your data. We actually use a tool where we can't even identify people individually. But when you have small sample sizes and you turn that over to the company, well, they can figure we we have no idea who who's who. They can figure but they it can out. They can figure it out. So um, with our they clients, we don't out. give them yeah. the raw data. And if we were to ever run into a client that wants that raw data in the future, it's part of the like upfront messaging, right? So when you when you click in on to take our survey, you will see the message that says exactly where your data is going, and 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 let the chips fall where they may. Uh, I I would be um, exactly. Um, remiss if I didn't mention GDPR, which is uh, data privacy regulation. Mm-hmm. So especially if there are other um, DEI consultants that are gathering personal information about staff, employees, clients, you know, consumers, whatever. Um, if you're either um, working with uh, people that are in Europe or even California has stricter data privacy laws than the rest of the country yes. and um, yeah, I have a, I have a data privacy lawyer. <laughs> so I was like, that is not, you don't, you don't want that. You heat. don't want to play with that. No. So there are regulations <laughs> no. No. around how, you know, you have to have a data privacy policy. You have to have that be accessible to people, anyone that's giving you information. Um, we use GDPR compliant tools. We have data retention policies, how long we keep data before we delete it. Um, and I, I don't know that enough DEI practitioners like are paying attention to data privacy and the work that they're doing. Um, but it's really, really important to be able to protect people's you identities and be able to protect their yes. information when you're getting this this um, this kind of data, this kind of insight from people. Yes, that's a good point um, to bring up. And you're right. I actually don't know how many uh, practitioners um, follow these um uh, data privacy laws, um, uh, or even consider GDPR yeah. because they may not be, um, restricted to working with people in, you know, um, outside of right. California True. or outside of the U S. Um, especially since a lot of companies have global presence exactly. now they're exactly. international and you may not be dealing with someone who's in Michigan mm-hmm. all the time. Absolutely. Right. Um, and it's, critical since we are supposed to be providing safe space. Yes. Sorry, safe spaces, brave spaces. Like we need people to be able to trust that we're not handing over their information to the people who are potentially going to leverage that against them. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I have found that clients that are really ready for this work, they don't want the data because they understand that. They're like, nope, we don't want the raw data. I haven't had a client yet say Mm -hmm. that they wanted the raw data after we had a conversation about it. 
I've had clients say, oh, yeah, sure, that's going to be good. We can go back and run some, you know, analysis after the fact. And I'm like, well, here's what you need to understand about that decision. And then they're like, oh, actually, no, keep the data. <laughs> you know, so most people, most people get it. You're right. They do. Thankfully. Yeah. Um, or it usually only takes one conversation. To figure out that, yeah. It's not possible. Yep. For you, what does divesting from and decentering whiteness look like in practice or execution? This is a big one. It's a hard (laughs) one. Yeah. Um, You know, I, I was born in the States, but I didn't really come to, I don't remember any part of that earlier part of my life. I remember my earliest memories are from after we moved to Nigeria, right? Um, And so Mm -hmm. I think I said earlier, I grew up in a place where I didn't have to question. I didn't, if you would have asked me, um, you know, if I was black, I would have been like, what do you mean? (laughs) Like, it wasn't even a thing. Like, I was just me. Mm -hmm. I was a girl. I was... You know, seven years old, I was, you know, I liked this, I didn't like that. Like, my race wasn't anything that I was consciously aware of. It wasn't a thing. Everybody looked like me. So coming from that environment to the United States and all of a sudden being around not just white people, but primarily white people, but also people from other parts of the world that were here in the U.S. um, was a big shock. Right. Like I have a lot of distinct memories of just that process of like, oh, this is where I am now. This is what they do here. Um, These are the things that are valued. This is what they do here. (laughs) This is what they value. This is what they don't value. Like, so those were very jarring experiences um, in that, like, you know, 10 to 13 year old time frame of like adjusting to a new country. And then fast forward to. Um, And basically what was happening is I was being indoctrinated into a different, I I will say a different version, a more overt into American culture, exactly, a more overt version of American culture, AKA white supremacy culture. Um, Now, fast forward a few years, um, I went to visit Nigeria when I was in college and I remember having this almost like spiritual experience of um, kind of shedding white supremacy culture, like Mm. a day or two in Nigeria. And I was like, wow, you know, it was like I was coming back to myself. This This is different. different We do like this. Oh, my goodness. Yes. You know, I mean, I, I journaled all the way back on the plane because it was there was so many things that happened on that trip because I had been gone since I was 10 and I didn't go again till I was like 19 or 20. Um. And so I remember um, reconnecting um, to my flight to the U.S. at Heathrow in London. And I felt like I was just assaulted by white supremacy all over again. Like (laughs) I got off that plane for my layover and it was like, oh, the billboards, they're not, they don't look like me anymore. They're all white. Look at the magazines, (laughs) look at the books, look at the people walking around. It was like, oh, And I felt like my armor was actually like, I could like feel my armor like rising back up. Like, okay, I have to like armor up Mm -hmm. to go back to life in America. Mm -hmm. Right. 
to doing things in a way that was more foreign to me than I had even realized because I'd been there for 10 years. Um, and so, right. I mean, that's just like one story <laughs> of like my own kind of awakening, you could say, you know, because I, um, I was a business major in undergrad. I was going to be in a, a marketer in a bank. Actually, I was interning um, at a bank and it was, it wasn't until my senior year after that trip that I was like, I can't do that. I can't, this can't be my life. I have to do something else. <laughs> so I ended up in DC wow. doing an AmeriCorps program. Cause I was okay. like, the, the only thing I could see myself doing is working in the nonprofit sector. And because they're at least trying mm-hmm. to make a difference, they're at least trying to improve the world mm-hmm. in some way. And these programs are helping those that are on the margins sort of, you know, get further in <laughs> and away from the margins. Um, right. And so, you know, I have a lot of stories like that. And professionally in my work, um, so much of the, the, the thing that is happening when we're working with clients is rooted in white supremacy culture, you know, and so much of the way that we even, that I even think about myself and my own work still, you know, I'm having to unravel, you know, you said divest from, from whiteness. Like I'm constantly unraveling when I said earlier that we, I am continuously humble. Like, you know what? I learned that. I learned that this is the way to be and this is what looks good, but that's not the case. We can still be effective by if we do it differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so mm-hmm. I'm in this like journey of, you know, endless creativity, creating and unwinding and creating new ways of thinking about things and doing things um, and trying to do it in a more liberated way. So it's, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> It's a lot to be doing the work it is and leading lot. other people through the work. And leading. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's something that we don't, we don't talk about as much. We don't bring up our own journeys of separating or decentering what whiteness and white supremacy or white supremacist culture um, looks like for ourselves in order to be able to lead others down Mm -hmm. a similar path Mm -hmm. um, and do it in a manner where we're not hurting, we're not repeating the same harms um, either against ourselves or against the people who have put their trust in us, right? Absolutely. I think it's a conversation. It's a larger conversation we need to have. And I'd love to have it with other equity practitioners because so many of us are not white. No, (laughs) we're not white. And that's why the work is so draining. I mean, I was in a, I was in a workshop. Now I, I'm, I've just begun to post, but I talk about with my, with my colleagues a lot. Um, you know, the tension between, uh, the DEI work that we're doing in companies and corporate and capitalism and how those two things are opposed to each other. If your DEI work is really rooted in anti-oppression, that's not what capitalism is very much rooted in oppression. 
So if you're trying to do anti-oppressive DEI work (laughs) in a capitalistic society, in a company that is squarely rooted, like we have to make money, it's the bottom line, we're trying to go public, how are you not talking about that tension? Now that's uncomfortable, having that conversation with the executive team of of a workplace. And anytime that it comes up, um, I I always shine a light on it, even if we're not... It's come up when we're in conversation about something totally different. It's been actually centered in like workshop scenarios with clients. Um, but any chance I get, I just try to highlight it for them. Like, listen, you have to understand that these two things are opposed. And there will be moments where you have to make a decision that is at the intersection of this tension. Right. And so make sure you really mean it when you tell your people what you <laughs> what you're committing to. Because sooner or later, if you are in a company scenario and if you're operating in this capitalistic society, even in the nonprofit space, you will have to make a call that will question how committed you are to this. Um, And there there are no easy answers, but just, you know, be ready to figure that out, to process that together with each other and figure out how, where you're going to land. I'm hoping that you land on the anti-oppression side mm-hmm. always <laughs> of that decision. Always. 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 That's where you should go. <laughs> We're going to keep beating that drum. <laughs> Just FYI. <laughs> always choose anti-oppression. Um, but there yeah. is a right answer for this one. Always choose anti-oppression. Yes. <laughs> so. Um, it is difficult. It is. It's, it's just like that is the that is a tension that we have to talk about more. Um, yeah, I don't know what got us on that topic. That's, <laughs> um, mm. I think going back, going back to like working in environments where people are coming to us either with an idea of what it is that they're trying to do, but unprepared mm-hmm. to actually parse out what it is that they're trying to achieve and how they're trying to achieve it. In addition to those who are already a little further along on their journeys um, and they've done surveys, they've gathered information, they've listened to um, all different levels of the organization and they know what it is that they're trying to achieve. And like having a plan is different from having everything buttoned up and wanting to go in this particular direction because it's, it's something that you need to do as an organization. It's a checklist yeah. or it's a, it's a box you need to check. Um, but it's something that I think about because working with product teams, working with tech companies, the bottom line is always first mm. and foremost in so. leadership's mind, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's such a hard process to get them to connect the safety and um, inclusion practices of everyone who's in their ecosystem, individual Mm -hmm. contributors all the way to the board, Mm -hmm. to the work that they do, to their hiring practices, to the way they build relationships with their um, customers. Mm -hmm. All of that comes full circle back to the organization. And it, when you're working with a particular product, all they want to think about is what can make that product good? Yeah. How do we get this out? Yeah. And it's like, you can't separate it 
from everything, everything else, else that mm-hmm. it's building when you cook something you can't mm. you can't have risotto without the rice mm-hmm. without the mushrooms without mm. whatever else that you need to put in there right you can't make Egusi without the freaking egusi. <laughs> you can't have the stew without no. all the ingredients in the You need, you the, need the melon seed. You and need the you melon need the seed. tomatoes and the onions. <laughs> <laughs> and the garlic. Yes. <laughs> and the protein. Uh, Whether mm-hmm. it's animal protein, vegetable protein, doesn't matter. Yeah. You need all of those ingredients together to come up with a final result. Yeah. And That's when you're trying to do the work, for people who are not just white, upper middle class, white men, mm-hmm. that means you have to decenter whiteness yeah. and you have to do that work for not only the company, but you have to decenter what you yourself as a practitioner, the equity practitioner have picked up because yeah. we're all cultured beings. Yeah. 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 We're, we're all, none of us are exempt from the work of right. divesting from whiteness and white supremacy. Um, we all have work to do, ongoing, never-ending work to do, to really work it out of the way that we think, the way we show up, the way we do whatever it is that we're doing. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to actually end it on a on a... Well, I think we've been relatively positive, but on a more upbeat note, what, what continues to give you hope in, in this work? And what would you like to, to end this um, session on? Wow. Um, what continues to give me hope? Um, <laughs> this is going to sound really cheesy, but young people give me hope. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> they do. I'm an old person now. I can talk about the young ones, like the young people. So the young ones coming up, they give me, they give me hope. Um, I, I'm, you know, just looking at my, I have a 14 year old and her friendship groups and the kinds of things that are like automatic. No, that's not okay. Is like, mm, wow. Yes. You're like, I had, this wasn't even yes. in my realm of anything I would know about at 14, but not only do you know about it, it's very, very clear to you and your friends that that is a wrong way to look at people or think about people or operate. Um, so they're, they're just starting off. <laughs> they're starting off at, at, a, at a much better starting point, I think, than uh, us, um, us old, older ones. Um, so they give me hope because they're going to be in the workplaces, you know, right? Um, yes. Yes. At the same time, you know, I know that, you know, the, that, you know, power is, um, you know, there's so many people, not just in the, in the States, but in the world that just get power bestowed on them. It's like their legacy, right? It's like, it's just being passed down from generation to generation to generation. Um, mm-hmm. So I know that they will still have these challenges because, again, the journey is not going to end in, in our lifetime in the next 200 years. Like it will continue to get better, um, but it's going to take a while before that, you know, utopia world that we, we hope will happen <laughs> happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know they're going to have their challenges uh, and their battles to fight. Um, and maybe they have to re- refight some battles that we thought had been fought and won, but 
but are being challenged yes. again, right? Um, but I really yes. do have hope that this new generation, um, they're not with the nonsense. Like, like, like we, we have been, I, f- I feel like my generation was really taught and I was explicitly taught in like, you know, workplace readiness programs and, you know, interview prep programs to oh, assimilate. Yes. It oh, was yes. like, go in there mm-hmm. and assimilate. Yes. <laughs> that was the, the training <laughs> curriculum. Right. So I'm really excited for this new generation. That's like, no, what is my hair being uh, green, purple and pink today have to do with the what's the work I'm producing? Absolutely nothing. Right. What do these oh, tattoos have it. to do with anything? Right. Mm-hmm. Why are there only white men leading this company? Mm-hmm. Where's everybody else? This does not align with my values. Mm-hmm. I'm out like they're just not with it. So. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I have, I draw a lot of hope from, from the youngins. I love it. I love it. And they I, continue to teach me every day too. You know, and so many, even, even young ones, like super baby babies, like, mm. they're learning parent, their parents are teaching them. Um, like for example, if you don't want anyone in your space, you tell them no, <laughs> Like nobody has any right just to the conversation get in of your face consent. To touch you, right? Ah, I'm like, yeah, I love it. It's amazing. <laughs> consent? We don't know anything about consent. We just got mad, and, right? Like, no, uh, no, yeah. <laughs> just Wait, got we mad could and... say no. I didn't know that. <laughs> we just went and stood right. in the corner, <laughs> right? We were just like embarrassed or internalized stuff that we never should have, and they're just. Mm-hmm. operating with a different framework so it's it's amazing it's amazing i love it thank you for sharing that yeah um on that note um we are bringing this session to a close it's been lovely speaking with you Olanike. yes what, thank what, what, you i was me. just gonna say can i plug my um course yes please do i have um so I'm sure you'll drop links and all that stuff so people know where to find things when you yes. when you publish. Um, but I have some um, exciting new things dropping for Mosaic. We have all our regular services, the consulting and the advising, speaking and, and workshops. But we are taking our um, full workplace equity audit, which is an amazing proprietary tool because we couldn't find anything good on the market that I could use as a consultant. So I built one and it's amazing. It gives you more data and information. Um, and so we're um, packaging that to be able to have other consultants use it to, to pair up with oh, whatever work that they're doing with clients um, and potentially mm-hmm. to run the survey just by itself for companies that just want to get the data and they're not really quite mm-hmm. ready for the consulting service yet. Um, but it gives them enough data to just start to have some internal conversation about where to go. Um, when I say data, kind of thinking back to our conversation, not the raw data, but the reporting, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the analysis and the reporting (laughs) that we do, um, to present that. So I'm really excited to be launching that DEI survey, um, in the next, um, a few weeks. And then I have an online course that I'm super excited about. That is also launching um, in, in, I think the first public offering will be in March, next month. Um, wow. And so I'm really excited. I'll share all the links, you know, so that we, we can put it on there. But um, yeah, I... Um, what is the course about? 
The course is about disrupt disrupting inequity Agreed. in in the workplace. Okay. Um, it is. Let me see if I can grab. It's on. Um, it's being hosted on a platform called Interplicity, and I have um, a special, unique code that I can share with my friends. Um, to log on and register and check it out if they would like to. Um, but it's all about just finding out where those pitfalls are in the workplace. You know, where are those hidden inequities? Where are those opportunities where you can disrupt inequity in the workplace, where you can make sure that you are making a real difference and Im- impacting your employee engagement um, across the board, right? Not just with the dominant folks that are in your workplace already. We want to make sure that um, you're really checking out all those processes that are running on autopilot and interrogating them for equity. Um, essentially, I'm going to walk you through the personnel lifecycle and talk through all the decision points along the way that you can do something about inequity in the workplace. So I'm really excited to launch that and hope that it helps people find their footing a little bit more um, when they're starting out with this work. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. We will um, drop those links into um, the the details uh, so that you can um, find that information uh, and looking forward to seeing both of those launches very soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I can't wait to talk to you with you again. Of course, you know, online or offline. And <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, I'm yes. wishing you the best. Thank you so much. You too. I do, I do feel like we're we'll probably do for another catch up after I get back. 